1: That's wise, W I S E dot com. Wise dot com.
2: Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. Evan Ratliff is on vacation, but I'm here with Aaron Lammer. How are you, sir? You appear to be on some kind of vacation yourself there. That does not look like where you normally call me from. I am in uh, beautiful Los Angeles, California. So nice here. Who is on the program? This week on the program, I talked to Sam Sanders. Sam Sanders is, uh, or was, I should say, a longtime NPR host. He hosted the Politics Podcast, and then for the last couple of years, he's hosted a show called It's Been a Minute. But he has left NPR, and he... Just launched. In fact, he had launched it the day we talked a new podcast called into it for vulture. It's a culture show. And we talked about starting something new and leaving NPR. It's always fun to have these conversations with people on the day that something launches, you know, it's like an exciting moment. And Aaron, we did it in person rare in person interview. I I don't think I've done an
0: in-person interview since COVID other than the time that Evan came to my house to interview me, which doesn't really count. So I envy you. That sounds delightful. Everything about this setting and setup uh, seems delightful. We should say for full disclosure, this show is produced in partnership with Vox Media. I believe they also
2: produce the Vulture show that Sam Sanders. Is that correct? New York Magazine, part of Vox, Vulture, part of New York Magazine. This is two Vox shows. It's the same family here. Consider it
0: disclosed. Here is Max with Sam Sanders. Hey Sam, how
2: are you? I'm all right, man. How are you? I'm in Santa
3: Monica. I'll survive. I know. I feel <laughs> like
2: uh, this feels like a real honor on like multiple levels. One of them is that you trekked across Los Angeles. I sure did. To come and do this in person. I sure did. B, we're just doing it in person. I know. Literally across a table. Yeah, it's a totally different experience. I like it. Yeah, it's I great. Like I can it. see like, you know, you've got like a torso. It's a whole different deal. I do. I do. And the third thing is I feel like uh, what an uh, incredible day to get to talk to you. You launched a podcast today. It's a great
3: day. This is a really good day. You know, it, this is my third time launching a show. First, the NPR Politics Podcast, and then It's Been a Minute a few years ago. And with those launches, I was scared out of my mind. The night before the Politics Podcast launched, I remember being at my cubicle in the NPR building till like midnight, trying to study, crying quietly while playing like Christian rock, like dark. The night before the trailer came out for It's Been a Minute, I was so nervous I couldn't sleep, and I walked my dog for five hours in the middle of the night. And my dog was like, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) And for this one, we wrapped our edits, I want to say into the Tuesday, so the engineer was just mastering everything on Wednesday. And last night, my boyfriend and I went to the movies. And then I came home and went to bed. just had a restful night's sleep. Yeah, you know, the biggest... Problem for me in this last twenty-four hours before the show hit listeners' ears was feeling very conflicted about the film I watched last night, which
2: is Nope. Oh yeah. Which I don't think is that good. can I say that? <laughs> I don't think it's that good. I don't, I don't think it's that good. I don't think you're allowed to say that. Okay, I know, I know, <laughs> scratch that.
3: But like that was the biggest source of stress for me. Wow. In the last 24 hours like what what is that about,
2: man? How have you uh how have you gotten I think to it's this
3: reps? Yeah. And I think it's just like a lot of like recentering of like priorities over the course of the last two or three years of pandemic. I think I've done a lot of work in trying to compartmentalize things a little more. I love my job, I love my work. I'm always proud of all of the audio I'm making and I want it to be good. But I want my job to live in a box. And I want when I'm done with the job to put my job in the box and then go to the fucking movies. And I want when I have finished my work to go live a life. And I think early on when I was starting to do podcasting or doing political reporting or breaking news reporting, the work itself was all consuming and it was the largest part of my life. Mm -hmm. And now I think this is the best show I've ever made, but it's a smaller part of my life. And that's good.
2: Is that like a um, function of maturity or of getting to a place where you don't need to work all the time?
3: It's a few things. I think the longer you do it, the quicker you get at it. So you don't have to spend 80 hours a week doing the job. You can Mm -hmm. actually do 40, maybe even less in a good week. (laughs) I also think that like you get older and like that's just part of the change. Like I, I first launched the politics podcast, what? November, 2015, almost seven years ago. Mm-hmm. I'm about to be 38. Let's say I was 30. I was like 32, 31 then. So I'm just like a different person. But also I think like the pandemic and my journey through pandemic, it was a lot of isolation, a lot of individual solo travel, a lot of being in different parts of the country and the world and sitting still and having a lot of time to think mm-hmm. and just, you know, this is, I'm, I'm not new to, to be saying this and everyone kind of had this journey, but like what really fucking matters and like my work will always matter to me because I get to do a job that I love to do when I really believe in it, but it's work. It's work. And so like, how do I continue to make really good shit and believe in what I do, but value my relationships and my friendships and my hobbies and my dogs just as much. Mm -hmm. That's the work. It feels like a job. Every job feels like a job. It's a job. I get paid for it. It's a job. I'm waiting
2: for the check every two weeks. It's a job. Did it always feel that way? Oh. I mean, when you were sitting at the NPR headquarters in 2015... Listening to Christian rock hill song. I should be clear because Christian rock's <laughs> going to make you think like DC talk. I'm talking like, you know, Hill song, like, like
3: that acoustic guitar shit. Sure. You know? I, yeah. I totally know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. Did it feel like a job then? It felt like a life. Yeah. But I have a life now that is not my job. Wait, what do you mean? It felt like a it life. It felt like a life. It felt like that was all that there was mm-hmm. and getting that right was all that mattered. And now do you feel like you've gotten it right? Some of it. I think I've figured out how to do the thing that I'm most likely to get right. I think a lot of what I was doing in the first several years of my career in journalism was like seeing what stuck. Mm -hmm. I was always kind of a generalist. In undergrad, I double majored in political science and music composition. I got a master's degree in public policy with a focus on like very generalist ideas and themes. And so I came into the work kind of just being a quick study. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, what do you want me to do, right? And so I covered business stuff for a little bit. I covered entertainment stuff for a little bit. I covered an election. And like, over the course of all of that, I think probably around two years into It's Been a Minute, I figured out my competitive advantage lies in this stuff. I like doing this stuff. Do more of that.
2: Well, I wanna talk more about what that stuff is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this thing you're talking about, I feel like there might be people listening for whom the clarity that you have about this is elusive.
3: Well, you caught me on a good day. <laughs> yeah, I think because we had like a relatively uneventful launch and no one has canceled me or the show <laughs> as of the first 17 hours it's been up. Yeah. I'm in a very good space today.
2: Well, that's great. I'm, I'm so glad to have caught you there. But it also seems like this is a product of a fair amount of thinking and intentionality. And mental health professionals. Thank you, Jonathan. I love you so much. <laughs> I want to understand a little bit better how you got there. Because I think it is difficult, particularly if you're like a young journalist, a young creative person. Many people have had the Hillsong experience. <laughs> yeah. And to get to a place where you're like, yeah, all right, I left the only place I've ever done this work. Mm-hmm. To me, from the outside, I was like, wow, that's a big move Sam made there's risk and challenge and exciting new stuff and all of this in there. And to be at a place where you're like, this has to have equal balance with my boyfriend and dogs yeah. and everything else. How do you do that? How do you get there? Series of disappointments. <laughs> you you need
3: to like see your job, let you down enough to let you know that it can't be your everything. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that as a personal attack against any place that I've worked for, but a good mentor of mine told me years ago, the company can never hug you back. It's not a person. And you have to have a certain number of experiences where the company just doesn't hug you back before you realize you need to put the job in its right place and live your life. And I think there were a lot of moments, especially during the pandemic, where it's like, My job is not going to tuck me in at night. (laughs) My job is not going to go on vacation with me. My job is not going to remember big milestones in my life or what my favorite ice cream is. So, like, let your job be your job and let your life be your life. And I think it just takes years of doing the thing we all do in our 20s where our jobs are our life before we see how we need to put it in its right place. So, I guess what I'm saying is time.
2: I mean, there's also this like question of identity, too. I think for many people in the industry in which we work, your job is who you are.
3: Yeah. After I had been hosting podcasts at NPR for a while, even people close to me would say, NPR Sam Sanders to me. And I was just like, <laughs> at first it's cute. And then you're like, no, that's weird. Yeah. That's weird. Right. And so, I want to develop and cultivate and maintain a personal life and a professional existence where like I'm a sentient being whether I'm working here or there or wherever and I'm like my own person
2: you know yeah no I do know you make it sound so simple it's not simple it
3: seems very hard <laughs> to me I think it's just like it's just fucking time yeah it's time like I've been doing this shit now <laughs> <laughs> Grizzled veteran, no, no. but like I, I was at NPR I left when I was 36 37 how old I am and I was actually there 13 years but 13 a bad number so I didn't say it I just said 12 <laughs> but I was at NPR a third of my life yeah that's a long-term relationship yeah. Even though your job isn't a person. It's like you're in a you're in relationship with that space. kinda of so difficult like, relationship because you guys
2: never went on vacation, exactly. never tucked exactly. you in at night, never hugged you back. Yeah.
3: But like when you do it that long at one place, you just get a holistic perspective about the institution where it fits in and how it fits into your life, and you just kind of come out of it clear eyed. Like mm-hmm. I have stared in and around and outside and inside of public media for the last dozen years. And so that makes it easier to keep it in its place and it also makes it easier to see yourself outside of it. Is that why you were ready to go? I was ready to go for a few reasons. What What were they? <laughs> I had to I had set myself up. <laughs> yeah. um, it was time, I think. Your answer to every question, Katie, just (laughs) times. No, I I think we got in this place with It's Been a Minute where you realize they were never going to ask you to stop. Mm -hmm. The show was working. The podcast downloads were good. The station count was good. The show was profitable quicker than they expected to be profitable. They had finally right-sized the staff, and they kind of were
2: like, all right. Right. We've got Do a we, we've got a franchise here. Robert Siegel is shit. Yeah. 30 years.
0: <laughs>
3: and it was just like, no, I don't think I ever wanted a career where I was doing the same thing for 30 years. Yeah. So that I also think that like editorially I had just become someone who was really contemplating what kind of capital J journalist I wanted to be, want to be. And I was questioning a lot of the rules and structure of what we think journalism is supposed to be. And I think I needed to be away from a legacy institution like NPR, at least for a spell, to work that out. Mm -hmm.
2: Just a place where there were slightly fewer constraints.
3: Yeah, and less of an expectation of a certain kind of performance. Mm Mm-hmm. So like there's this thing with NPR where it's like, even if your bosses are saying to you, no, 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 it's cool. Go crazy. Do whatever you want. There's a listenership that knows what they expect mm-hmm. and you want to keep them happy too. Cause you want them to have a good experience. I want it to be good for you. And I think what happened a lot with the podcast with it's been a minute was like, I had in my mind a version of a show I would make if it were just a podcast and I had in my mind a version of that show that I would make if it were just a weekend public radio show. And I had to make a show every week that was both of those things. And at first it was a fun challenge, and we made something good. But I do think, particularly for the subject matter of the show and as it leaned more into culture and less into hard news, I thought it would be an even better product if I was speaking to a
2: narrower audience and not a broader one. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the dynamic with um, podcasts doing live shows. Hmm. Like I feel like every time we do a live show and like the idea is that what is recorded will go through the feed. Yeah. There's always this question of who's this for? And (laughs) who's gonna get it? Is it for the audience that's in the room or is it for the people who are gonna listen? Yes, Because if you try and do something for both of them,
3: it might still work,
2: but it can't be its absolute best
3: version of itself. But then also, there's some things we did on that show where I'm like, "Whatever platform you put it on, it's just good audio." Yeah. But I think the mental and emotional work of like feeling the need to thread that needle every week—totally—it was kind of like you know, no harm, no foul. I'm not mad about that. But what it would, what would it feel like to not have that challenge every week?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And so now I'm getting to figure that out. And I can say, fuck now.
4: <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay that that's what it was all about. So I mean, just, you can just admit it. Yeah, yeah.
2: I want to go back to the first reason for a second. The show had worked, and it hadn't just worked in content, but it worked behind the scenes. The show was profitable. It had the staff that you needed to make it. The downloads were where they needed to be. The stations were where they needed to be. Mm-hmm. When you think about like that five-hour walk with your dog the yeah. night before it launched... Do you think that guy would have thought that if you hit all of those marks, it would have felt like time to go? No.
3: No. I think that guy, nervous before the launch of the show, would have probably never left the show. But I think that guy is a worse version of me. Yeah. (laughs) I'm a better version of myself now. It's your pre-pandemic. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think... I think so much of my professional focus for a long time was like hitting certain benchmarks within the public radio institution. I wanted to be a reporter by 30. Once we launched these shows, I wanted them to be a hit on whatever podcast charts. And then once we had the radio show, it was like, I wanna be on the most radio stations I can get on. I kept hitting the benchmarks I would set for myself. And then you're kind of just like, well, the benchmarking is just, continuous benchmarking for yourself. Like what do you just want to actually do week in and week out? And I think the version of the show that we've landed on with into it is actually the kind of conversations I really want to have every week Mm -hmm. in and out.
2: Do you feel, um, less professionally ambitious? Yeah.
3: Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Got a good job. Show sounds good. People will hear it. money's all right. Cool.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Just a job.
0: Yeah.
3: Because it's like, that's exactly right. And I love it. I love this job. I love this show. I really like Vulture. I really like Vox. I I think that they are a company that is moving into the future very seriously, and I love it. But it's a job. And I think it's healthy to have that kind of relationship with your employer.
2: It really puts into perspective what's on the other side of the scale. Yeah. I mean, maybe this is just like more max than you're interested in. Tell me. But it's unclear sometimes to me whether the benchmarks are the empirical benchmarks that I have set Uh or whether they are like a rabbit that I have put out in front of myself. Yes. Because you
3: need the rabbit.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear the degree to which you were like, it's not just it's a job and therefore it should be 40 hours and some weeks less it's that there's a bunch of stuff on the other side yeah. that hasn't been getting the prioritization or the intention. And they don't
3: require a chase. <laughs> they don't require a chase. Yeah. Spending time with people you love doesn't require a chase. Mm-hmm. It's just there. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, yeah, how do we make that an equal, if not bigger, part of our lives. And these things that feel like chases. Well, I'm too old. You're 40. I'm 37. Why are we chasing? Why am I chasing anything? Yeah. My knees are bad. <laughs>
2: like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, before we started, we were talking about how
3: we can't really drink anymore. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We're, we're like, uh, we're yeah. old men. Stop chasing shit. <laughs> Sit down. Watch
0: the sunset. <laughs> Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball, needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs. Threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something. Like, very quickly, the voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk free. Now, normally you get a two week free trial, but listeners of long form get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier.
1: Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let Wise help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using Wise worldwide. To learn more about how a Wise account could work for you, download the app or visit wise.com. That's wise, W-I-S-E ecom wise.com. wise.com.
2: There's one other thing that you were talking about in terms of the NPR stuff, which I think is connected to this very healthy perspective that you appear to have shown up to this interview with, (laughs) which is that, like, at least for the last couple of years, certainly since it's been a minute, you've been in the business of being Sam Sanders. And I wonder a little bit how you think about the person you are when microphones are turned on and who you are when you're looking at the sunset Is there a gap there, and how do you think about that gap?
3: Yeah, there's definitely a gap, and I think there's two gaps. I think one is just like, all right, what parts of my life will I share on the microphone and what parts will I not? And there's a clear line, and I think I share a lot, and people feel like they know me, and they know a lot about me, but there's something they're just not going to know about. Mm -hmm. Like, they just won't, right? And over time, that changes, but in general, like, I know what I'm going to tell y'all about me and what I'm not going to tell you about me. And then I think the other thing is just like, the performance of self on the microphone is incredibly authentic, but it's authentic with like 15% more charm. (laughs) Yeah. So like, I want to actually come with real questions that I would have as an individual, an earnest curiosity that I would have just like as a consumer of the news and and the culture. But when I hit the mic, I want it to be like, yeah, Sam just got out of the shower. The cologne is fresh. Right. His tie is sharp. It's like, 15% more because I want to sell it right like I want you to have a good experience and I want to give you not a fake version of me but the best version of me
2: when I um, started doing this I was talking to a friend of mine who had a lot of experience doing it and I was asking him what his advice was and his advice was basically like you want to be yourself yeah but just having done a very small amount of cocaine
3: yeah I said that too eagerly (laughs) but yes (laughs) Yes.
2: Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 That's like another version
3: of, like, uh. yeah. And it's funny what I used to do when it was time to go on the mic. I would like do this thing and I don't have to do it anymore. I, I would like take a breath. And as I was exhaling, I would like pump my shoulders up. Kind of mm-hmm. like a, oh, we're here. Let's fucking go. It's time. Turn it on. Yeah. And it's not, I'm not turning on something fake. I'm like amping up the real, you know? Mm-hmm. And you just get better at it when I started hosting both of the last shows, I was so superstitious. I had to record barefoot. I had this list of things I had to do to feel like I could like do the interview. And now I'm just like, let's, let's do the interview. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> just like over the course of the pandemic, I recorded public radio stuff in five or six different states. Cause I was all over the place during the pandemic road tripping here and there, living in Texas for a while, et cetera. And you're just, yeah, the more you do it, the more mm-hmm. you're like, this is a light switch.
2: Right, turn it on. Okay, let's go. A light switch that you are in some control of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you find it harder to flip that switch in the pandemic, like over Zoom? Well, one,
3: they sent us all home. We we're like, come back in two weeks. And I was like, cool. And it was really cute for the first week because it was like, I'm gonna set up my little recording thing on my dining room table. Here's a picture, isn't it cute, isn't it fun? And then I realized the first week of the interviews from home, you really couldn't gel or vibe. You're talking over the guests and they're talking over you because you can't see them and there's a delay and the zoom was weird because we hadn't figured it out. And then after a month of it, you kind of realized the work that was necessary to set the table and then it was okay. Mm -hmm. And generally what that was was just saying, I know it's weird. It's Zoom. You can't see me. I can't see you. I'm so sorry. Isn't this weird? Oh my God, fuck COVID. And then they're like vibing with you and then it's fine. Yeah. And then about three months after that, everyone, especially all of the celebrity guests, we all realized that they liked doing it from home better anyway, yeah. as did I. And they almost are better when they're at home. They're looser. They're better at, looser at home. Well, A, you can get them yes. more easily.
2: Oh, yeah. But B, there's something about talking about yourself in your own living room. Just be yourself.
3: Yeah. Now I think if I were to go back to recording some of these interviews in person, it might sound worse. <laughs> and that's a thing I never would have thought at this start of pandemic.
2: Can we talk about interviewing a little bit? Yeah. How do you approach interviews? And you've been doing this for a long time, but in a practical and tactical way, how do you approach an interview? Just like the nuts and
3: bolts yeah. of the way that me and my teams have done them over this show in the last few shows i kind of want someone to tell me what to read so either an editor or producer would be like here's some links read this shit and then i just am like devouring the information or watching the whole tv show or watching the whole movie or reading the whole book and then just like vomiting every thought and usually that is like a note in my iphone that's just a gobbledygook or like handwritten notes in a notebook And then once I'm done just dumping my ideas, I'm pulling from that just list of whatever my interview questions. So I I, 101% of the time write my own interview questions, at least the first crack at them. The rest of the team can get in later and suggest more or whatever or cull my list because there's times I'll have like too many questions. But I think the biggest part of the intellectual work of like getting that together is like, having a story structure for my interview questions. Mm -hmm. And that took me a while to get to. I think when I started interviewing creatives and celebrities on It's Been A Minute, I kind of was just like, let's get vibes. And then like you realize that there's actually an arc to these interviews, and there's usually a landing that you wanna stick. Mm -hmm. For me, if I'm describing the arc of a good long-form interview, what I want is like really intense, emotional, Connection, almost like first date vibes at the top, and a lot of the times, the listener never hears that. It's just me spending three to five minutes making sure my guest is loose, and I'm usually pulling something out of their personal history that seems random and trivial that we can connect on. Like, who was it? A director who was pushed in a film was like, "How am I gonna connect with her? We have nothing in common." But like. On her Instagram feed, seven photos in, she had a picture of her next to Jamie Foxx and he was wearing this weird backpack. And so my open was like, I saw you hanging out with Jamie Foxx, that backpack, right? And then we just vibe on that for a while.
2: And Jamie Foxx is so fun. And you knew like days before that you were gonna start with the backpack?
3: At least the day before. Yeah. And so I'm like, we're doing backpack and that's gonna give us, you know, the moment of that first meeting where you have to talk it out long enough before everyone's shoulders kind of settle. Mm-hmm. So once we've done that, then like the interview starts, and then that part of the interview is like getting my audience to the same place I am with this creative's work. So then that first third is just like setting up the work. Mm-hmm. Let's hear a bit of the album. Let's what is this role? And that's kind of those are pretty kind of one on ones. Yeah. And that's like uh, lots of times that central question is like. if I I made you like tell our listeners what this thing was in like one minute or less, what would you say? Like just get it out there, right? Yeah. And then the second part is usually who they are and where they came from and what they were doing before inform what they're making now. But the third part is like really the fun part. And that's where I feel like you're trying to get to a central idea or thesis or bigger idea. like about the work they're doing or about what the world should take from it. And a lot of times, especially as I've gotten more comfortable kind of just saying how I feel about some of this stuff, it'll kind of be like, well, here is my theory of your work. Mm -hmm. I think it actually means this. I think it symbolizes this in the greater scheme of things. Do you agree? Do you have a different theory? (laughs) Let's hash it out, right? And then through that, we kind of stick this landing, even in a discussion of like, A raucous comedy like Eric Andre's Bad Trip, we have gotten to a bigger idea. When for that chat, it was kind of like, what does it mean to approach the world of like prank comedy through a lens of color? It's usually white. He is not, and a lot of Bad Trip was just like black people doing these pranks Mm -hmm. and black folks in the audience. How does that change it? And like, what is a big takeaway of that work? You know, so like, when you get it right. Yeah, you're getting to some bigger idea Mm -hmm. and there's always an arc of the questions to get you there. I've found in my experience that third
2: act, aside from the theory that you have come with, Mm -hmm. how much of that do you have in your head when you sit down and how much of that is reacting and responding to what's actually happening in the conversation?
3: Well, a lot of times the third act will have questions that are just follow up questions from other interviews a lot of times I'll read the magazine profile or listen to their other interviews and I'll just finish it and be like, well, why didn't they ask that? <laughs> and then I just ask that uh-huh. and I'll be like, you know, in this other interview, you said that, but I would have asked you after that blah, 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 and just do it. Mm-hmm. But then a lot of times I just, I really just do have an opinion about their shit. Yeah. I have an opinion about it and I want to know if I'm right to feel that way and ask the source. And how do you react if they say you're wrong? I love it.
2: That's great tape. Yeah. <laughs> Conflict is great tape. Yeah. Yeah. How many questions do you go in with? Like of that initial list that you Let do. me pull up Joel. Joel was the last real like long form.
3: Joel bam. bam. Kim Booster. Fresh, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Joel Kim Booster. We were on Fresh Air talking about Fire Island. And I'm going to go see how many questions I had. Hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I'm going to tell you exactly how many. And that one was fun because we were talking about more than just Fire Island. He had a comedy special too, has a comedy special. Um, they finally made me a Google Docs girl. I hate it. <laughs> Think everyone can edit at the same
2: time. Oh, yeah. That yeah. is, Jesus. That's the most npr shit you've said this entire time. <laughs> <laughs> How so? I just feel like um, the world moved to Google
3: Docs a while ago. Listen, I wasn't. Let me tell you, Newsflex, Newsflex. Did you ever use that? It's no. an internal NPR system that feels like it's from 1974.
2: Is it from 1974?
3: Because Newsflex like, yeah. sounds like a name it's that would come from. Why uh, can't I find this doc? I'm gonna find it because now I have to know how many questions I asked that man. I'm gonna go to my Google
2: Docs. There you go.
3: Stop There's looking. A, stop looking in Newsflex, man. You're not there anymore. I'm not there anymore. I'm not there anymore. <laughs> Okay, one, two, three, a follow, Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, maybe like 20 questions. <laughs> I think I might have asked 15. I think they kept 10. I, don't, I didn't listen to the final cut. But yeah, you but know, like, you know inside of the interview, okay, skip that. Because uh, a lot of times you're writing. Too many questions to make sure you get them to all of these points you think they should hit. But sometimes you ask the right question at first and they were giving you the answer to your next three or four questions. Right. In which case just pivot. You just scrap those. Yeah. And then sometimes they just give you a curveball and you're like, oh, we're going there. We're fucking going there. (laughs) And then sometimes things just like come to you in the midst of the interview. But for the most part, you sort of know where you're going. Oh yeah. I know where I want to end up. Mm-hmm. And it's less of like, I need them to say this thing. It's more of, I need the room to feel this way. Mm-hmm. I need the room to feel reflective and contemplative. And like we have arrived at something to chew over for a while. I want to give that to listeners. Do you get there every time? That's the goal. <laughs> uh, probably not every time, but that's the goal. And in worst case scenario, I'll just write my conclusion and say it. <laughs> I'm kidding.
2: <laughs> but sometimes I've done that. <laughs> When you're trying to get there every time, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: I mean, you can't get there every time.
3: You can try. You can try. There's beauty in the work. So even if I don't get there, it's a fun exercise.
2: If you can't get someone to really open up or connect with you, you don't feel deflated afterwards? It's usually fixed in post.
3: Yeah. (laughs) We had a really weird interview with Maya Rudolph when she was promoting whatever the last thing, not, not loot. This was a cycle before loot. Mm -hmm. And I'm the world's biggest Maya Rudolph fan. I've even gone to see her Prince cover band called princess. (laughs) And I could just tell she was tired. She was having one of those press junket days. Yeah. And so it never felt like the vibes got all the way there, but in post you tighten the cut up and it was great. Add some tape. It was great. (laughs) It's going to be fine. If anything, sometimes the interviews need to get shorter. Yeah, but it's it's going to be fine. Also, these folks know how to play. This is a job. Mm-hmm. They want to sell it too. <laughs> they want it to be good too. You know, I think there's some where. What was the most? I'm trying to think now. What was the most deflating one? <sighs> can I say this? Yes. Oh no! Can I say this? Yes. J Lo. Really? We got her at a weird time. It was, it was one of her bad movies, not Hustlers. It was like one of those bad rom-coms before Hustlers in that valley of her movie career, which went on for a while. But we got her, and we're proud to get the booking. But we got her on a junket day. I think they wanted to give us 15 minutes. I was like, you've got to give us 45. I have to wait at the Beverly Hilton whatever for like hours, and she's late. Because of course she's late. She's busy. She walks in literally fresh out of the shower in a robe and like has other things to do. And like, she was just not ready to have a deeply intellectual conversation. And she's also particularly guarded with how she deals with the press because the press has just been shitty to her for a very long time. Right. And so I had these deep existential questions about like the nature of celebrity. No, it's not gonna happen. Yeah. So she didn't give me that. And And what do you do in that moment? Do you keep pushing? Yeah, a little bit. There's this magazine profile of her from early in her career. I want to say she had just become somewhat of a Hollywood it girl, and it was before I guess they sat her down and gave her the media training. But she was in this magazine profile talking crazy shit about all the other women celebrities of her time. <laughs> and I wanted to go there with her and talk about that and talk about what she learned and talk about how this industry like has to train you how to be a celebrity the right way, and she just wasn't having that.
2: Yeah Is interviewing something you feel like you can get better at? Yeah. Do you think there is still lots of room for you to grow as an interviewer?
3: Yeah, there are whole worlds that I can become more versed in. There are swaths of the population that I could get more comfortable talking to. I think in general, the sweet spot for our show, for It's Been a Minute and for this new show, was always just like, I love to talk to people who aren't from central casting. I love to talk to people who are from marginalized backgrounds. I love to talk to people who know what it feels like to be othered. And so my sweet spot is like, I can say it cause I'm one of them. My sweet spot is like the alphabet people, the BIPOCs, the LGBTQIA plus, 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 like the people who observe the world through a lens of otherness. I love that. I probably could do a little better in getting better at having conversations with everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like also there's just large parts of the world that I don't understand that I would become a better journalist if I understood them. I don't get the world of gaming at all. I don't get the world of sports at all. And if I'm making a show right now that is basically covering entertainment and covering popular culture in the zeitgeist, when you look at the world of entertainment, the returns in every segment of that industry are declining except for gaming music revenue is down film revenue is down TV revenue is down you know what's up video games they're also movies now yeah exactly they're TV shows they're movies they're like so like that is a world that I should just like know more about mm-hmm. just to like be good on my beat right same with sports we we treat sports as if it's separate from like entertainment but it's just a form of entertainment. You know, hundred percent years ago. I did a little bit of coverage of like basketball when the LA Clippers had like a race scandal and that was fun. <laughs> but like I more mean,
2: sports would be good for me. The NBA is legit. Just a soap opera. Yeah. Like the people who love the NBA love it for what happens off the court. Exactly.
3: Exactly. Well, and it's like, the best stories are ones that could appear in any section of the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it's a sports story, but it's also a business story, but it's also a style story, but it's also a hard news story. And it's like, a lot of times the sports stories are that. So I think the work for me, in terms of like becoming a better interviewer, it's like expanding the things I feel comfortable talking about. Right, less the way you talk about them. Well, maybe, the way, maybe that too, I don't know. Maybe that too. I think early on, a lot of those early interviews for It's Been A Minute, I was so eager to connect with the guests that I was sometimes talking over them in a way that really pissed some listeners off. And I got better at that. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work
4: Built to be accessible, empowering, and community-building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com.
2: What about the new show is going to allow you to continue to to grow. What's going to be different about Intuit than what you've done before? We're really trying to like reimagine what these media interviews
3: should be and what they should do. So I can't reveal the guest yet because we haven't taped, but I think he's a solid yes. And we're going to have it run in the next few weeks, but we're talking with a TV creator, writer, about how he resists the impulse to continue to spin out ip when you have a thing that does well he's a creator who has made very distinct projects that are perhaps most distinct for only being seven episodes long or nine episodes long and he fights the urge to do stranger things and the stranger things spin-off and the stranger things video game and the stranger things prequel and the stranger things movie and stage play. He's just like this is a concrete work, take it or leave it. Bam. Mm-hmm. And so that conversation could be in the typical public radio long form format where it's like this is a career chat. Yeah. I want to end this conversation knowing a lot about this guy. But we're saying, what if the conversation really isn't about him? What if the conversation is just about the idea? Mm -hmm. And then that makes it a different conversation. And I'm structuring these things in different ways. And I actually care less about his backstory. I care about this idea. What does it mean to maintain some semblance of editorial
2: purity? It's like you're um, zooming forward to the third act.
3: Yeah. And I think that part of that is allowed by having a narrower audience and perhaps a narrower focus. I don't know how big this audience will be for this show. I hope it's big as fuck. But like, (laughs) we're going to be talking to people that are choosing to be there and are coming with a certain level of knowledge about this stuff because they're choosing to listen to an entertainment show, Mm -hmm. right? From Vulture and me. You know kind of what you're signing up for. Whereas if I'm doing any interview that I know is going to be on a public radio station over the weekend, I feel an obligation to make sure everyone, no matter the entry point or when they come into the conversation, can feel connected to it. And so if that pressure is gone, we can be a bit narrower. There's a certain way that I would ask questions when I knew they were on the radio, where you're like constantly in every other question, re-ID'ing the guest and the project in your question. It's because you know that some folks just tune in in the middle of an answer. Mm-hmm. Do not have to think about that.
2: It's just interesting. It seems like, um, I mean, I'm only going off of one episode. Okay. But the Beyonce one is considerably more focused on the business yeah. than on the music. In part because I haven't heard the album yet.
3: <laughs> we had this crisis about a month ago. We were trying to map out as much we could what the first month of the show was going to be. I'm like, we well, think we have a plan. And then I was like, yo, the Beyonce album is going to come out the day after our first episode. (laughs) We can't call ourselves a pop culture podcast and not be talking about that. So our way in was just like, how do we talk about Beyonce without having actually heard the album? And that was our answer. Maybe
2: I'm just reaching here, but it sounds like this conversation you're gonna have with the TV creator is also in some way about the business rather than just the creative work.
3: A little bit, yeah. Right now at least the episodes are, they have three parts. The A is a fun game, into it, not into it, or some other version of that. Like a fun, rapid fire way to get through a few stories mm-hmm. really quickly. That's like laughing. The B is the meaty chat. That was the Beyonce chat for this episode. And the C is basically our heightened version of recommendations or love it or hate it. We're calling it culture geist. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the B's will be about the business of the industry, just because I'm into that. So next week's B, Lord willing, it might change, is on like. How A24 became A24. Yeah. They're the coolest movie studio. Why? How? What does that mean? And what lessons should the greater industry, larger industry take from that? Now I'm thinking about it. That's also a biz chat. I think in large part because there was a certain point in my career where I wanted to just cover the business of the entertainment industry. And for a second, I was about to go to Planet Money and try to do that. Yeah? Yeah. I don't want to go to New York. Yeah, that's a mistake. (laughs) Being here in Los Angeles,
2: you should definitely stay it. New York smells like garbage. It's just better here. It's just like, it's very clearly better
3: here. I love my New York friends. I have fun when I go there. I'm not living there.
2: I think part of the reason I was asking about your interest in the business of culture is I'm interested in your relationship to the business of media and particularly of audio is part of your interest and focus on the business side of things because you are also curious about the business of media? Like, do you, do you give a shit about this stuff? I'm asking in part as like someone who was at NPR for 13 years yeah. and watched this like podcast boom happen yeah. from inside the world of Newsflex. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm interested in how important that is to you, how much time you spend thinking about that. I think a lot about what the
3: relationship should be between a creator and the company and a creator and their audience. I create a, such a loaded word. It sounds like a, the talent, whatever you want to call it. But like, I think a lot about like what that relationship should be. And I think that is an ongoing question for the entire industry. And I think it's changing over time. I think there was a time in public radio where the take was like you belong to us you work for us all the shit you make is ours we'll pay you what you pay you don't ever think about leaving and don't ever think that you can like do other things besides just this that's over right i think there are certain pockets of the industry that have been slow to take that lesson but like that's over and now we're in this new world that almost kind of feels like a wild wild west driven in large part by media fragmentation and social media and et cetera. You get, you know, but it's like in that shakeout, what should these relationships be? I'm not sure the answer is the creatives doing everything on their own and everything being independent. I think there's benefit to working with institutions that have infrastructure, but I think the way that it had been done for a long time was just not fair. I mean, doing something on your own must have been an option for you. It was. And then I realized, oh, I got to be somebody's boss. I got to be someone's HR. I got to approve vacation. I got to do payroll. No. Mm -hmm. No. When I was figuring out my exit from NPR, I had a lot of conversations all across the industry and there were versions of my professional life that could have been a lot more independent than what I chose, but I like the support of an institution. And like even getting this Vulture show together, we're never not gonna be able to book a guest because I can just call my Vulture friends, and they're there, Mm -hmm. and they can help me market this show, and they can help me sell this show, and they can help get me placed in interviews like this one. They have an infrastructure. I like that, right? I think that there were options for me that would have been like a larger check out the gate, but less of that support. And the last thing I wanted to do was have a lot of money and then make a podcast no one listened to. What's the fucking point of that? The money? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Maybe the next job. And the money's still good here, but like like, there's, yeah. I mean, I think just like there are
2: lots of people who have like looked at that equation and been like, that is the obvious reason that I will do that. Yeah, I didn't do that yeah i want people to hear it i think it's good
3: i think that what i make is good i work with good people smart people we make good shit i want you to hear it i want you to like it and i want it to be good for you and i want to figure out what that equilibrium is between like the talent and the company and Mm -hmm. i'm still getting there and still working that out
2: do you have like a ideal version of what that is
3: i think there's an emotional idea of what it is and then there's like a Paper and numbers idea of what it is, and like a lot of it is just kind of IP ownership questions. And I've never really been too obsessed with IP ownership questions, just because the kind of show that I'm making right now is not going to become a movie. (laughs) Could become a TV show though. Well, then I'll do it, and they can own the last name. I'll make a new show. Mm -hmm. Let's say one day someone's like, "Make your show a TV show." Vulture can keep that IP. NPR can keep it. It's been a minute. This show that I make for TV will just be the Sam Sanders show or room service, the show, right? (laughs) Like if it's just a talk show, then I'm like the floating IP and wherever I am is ostensibly the IP, no matter who owns the name of a thing. Yeah. If I were making a seasonal show with the central idea and plot that could easily become a limited TV series or a movie, I'd be much more concerned with owning the IP.
2: Do you want to do TV?
3: As a kid, I was Infinitely obsessed with Inside the Actors Studio. Remember that show? Oh, yeah. With James Lipton? Yeah. Oh, my God. Just good shit. Good shit. Good would, interviewer. A really good interviewer. And I was like, oh, if I could do a thing like that on a screen, I would do that. But where does that space exist? Where can you see long form interviews on a screen right now? Hot uh, <sighs> ones? Yeah. Fuck that. <laughs> Fuck a gimmick like having to eat hot chicken
2: <laughs> to do an interview. That's stupid. Yeah, they, they mostly haven't worked. I feel like there's been half a dozen or a dozen attempts to like, it's like a podcast, but yeah. on TV, and none of them work. Yeah, Because it's a podcast. It's yeah. better as a podcast.
3: Well, and it, like this is the kind of chat you want to have on while you're doing other stuff. I know my place in people's lives. You listen to me while you're making dinner, while you're cleaning your house, while you're doing laundry, while you're driving. I like it that way. Mm-hmm. I don't mind being someone's secondary activity. When you're on a screen, you become their primary activity. And how do you do that? Well, without doing
2: sensational TV shit that I hate. I feel like we inverted your structure a bit in this interview. How so? Well, I feel like we sort of started with the third act. We did. You sort of sat down and you, you just started talking about the thing that I was... Trying to get to? Sort of the most curious about. Okay. Which was about this balance... Between the work and the rest of your life, and about leaving this place that you'd been for 13 years where you were NPR's Sam Sanders. And like today, in some ways, feels like the first day of the rest of your at least like media life. Yeah. And so, like the question I had for you was like, how intense does that feel? How much pressure do you feel? And instead, you showed up and you were like, oh, no, I'm, I'm good, actually. It's just because I got a good parking spot. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that really set the whole tone of this
2: conversation.
3: I was feeling so good about that.
2: <laughs> Before we go, I have one more question to ask you, which is a couple weeks ago, I had your former colleague, Lulu, on the show. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to ask you the same question I asked her, which is, what the hell is going on with NPR?
3: At some point,
2: the executives have to answer
3: that question. I mean, I've talked about it before in tweets and in other articles. There's a USA Today article with me talking about some of NPR's race problems. I've been quoted in David Folkenflick of NPR's reporting on those problems. Lulu has spoken about it before. And what I want for the public radio system is for some of that pressure to be taken off of the public facing creatives of color. And go to the executives mm-hmm. who have the power in these organizations. I think the problems that NPR is dealing with are the problems pretty much every legacy newsroom is dealing with right now. And they're questions of equity and questions of, you know, whose voice and which audiences are prioritized. And so like, none of it's rocket science. Like, I, I'm not going to say anything about the problems of, of NPR that haven't been said before, even by me before. I think my question now is like, well, who's gonna speak to it? I don't work there anymore. I did my part while I was there. You know, I tried to use the platform and space I had to raise some of these issues publicly Mm -hmm. because I would see the way that management would react to things when you brought it to them in private and when you tweeted about it. And there were some days when it's like, I know that if I tweet about this, they'll fix it tomorrow. Mm -hmm. If I go to a meeting and ask for it, there'll be five more meetings. I don't feel that pressure anymore because I don't work there anymore. But I think that, like, there are a few dozen senior VPs and members of high leadership at NPR, at public radio stations across the country. They should be answering these questions. Do you think they will? The best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. (laughs) (laughs) I also will say, I've lived through several CEOs at NPR. I think John Lansing gets it. Mm -hmm. I like him. He means what he says, but he's one person in a very big system, and it's hard to turn a ship that big. Even when you're at the top of it.
2: It's a big ship, it's a very big ship. How big a role did those issues that you were talking about while you were there play in your decision to not be there anymore? Big enough, big enough. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah you know I think I'm very wary about saying things that might get picked up in regards to that's the story of NPR's drama because mm-hmm. like what happens to someone like me if I get a series of headlines about that it throws me off my game it distracts me worst case scenario I come out looking like the angry black man and I'm stereotyped NPR is actually fine either way. Mm -hmm. NPR is really big and they're going to be fine, whatever the case. And so at a certain point with these conversations, there's this pressure to clear the air and say it all, but there also needs to be a modicum of like self-preservation. Yeah. But I am glad in every conversation that people still think to ask the questions. I think it's necessary I think that public media and legacy news institutions form a necessary and vital public service. Mm -hmm. And so they should be the best they can be, and we should hold them accountable and make sure they do that. I think the question now is, what is the best way to apply that pressure, and who do we apply it to? And I think that for a long time, public-facing creatives of color were expected to answer those questions while also performing the extra work of fixing the places. Mm -hmm. There's so many institutions across all kinds of industries where the very idea of DEI just means more work for the women and people of color and queer people because it's more panels and more committees and more outreach and this, do that and do that. And that stuff usually goes to the very people who are, suffering in these systems and so like I want the work of DEI to be something that's held by everyone in an institution like NPR or the Washington Post or New York Magazine Mm -hmm. the people suffering at these places the most can't also be the ones that fix these places They do the thing
2: right yeah how does it feel for you personally to be out of the system It feels fine.
3: I think there was a level of existential dread about what happens once I'm not there. But then you realize people quit jobs all the time. Mm -hmm. My friends who are lawyers, my friends who are in tech, they got a goddamn new job every six months to a year, and they love it. And there's something about journalism we get so precious
2: around longevity in our careers. Totally. I mean, but you were in a situation where like your face was on the cover art. Yeah. Yeah. And I still have a face. (laughs)
0: Still
3: there. I
2: I can see it it right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
3: So much of the pandemic experience for me was just like letting go of attachment. A few months into pandemic, I put all my shit in storage. And I moved back home to Texas and rented like a house month to month and was there for half a year. And then I sold my car, got another car and drove across the country twice recording the show. And then I got back to L.A. and I didn't have an address for another half a year. I housed that for friends. I was here. I was there. And I just had like an incredible period of like purposeful instability that made me question a lot of my notions of what I need to be attached to. Do I need to be attached to It's Been a Minute to make work that I believe in? Do I need to be attached to NPR to make work that I believe in? No. I didn't need to be attached to a permanent physical address for almost two years.
2: Mm -hmm. That's fine. What are we attached to and why are we attached to it? It's an incredible thing for someone to say who launched a podcast today. It's just because of the parking spot, man. (laughs) (laughs) I got a good parking spot. Everything is great. All right, well, I'll call you tomorrow and see how we do (laughs) it. Sam, thank you for doing this, man. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky, my co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Gabriella Saldivia. Thanks to her. Thanks to Megan Valley, who took care of the show notes. Thanks to Vox, with whom we make this show. And thanks very much to Sam Sanders. His new podcast is called Into It. We'll see you next week.